This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Now, uh, it was World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October and throughout the month, we've been having a lot of conversations, just trying to increase, um, you know, awareness, continuing the increasing awareness about mental health issues. And uh, on the show today... Um, we will be looking at the mental health struggles that parents and children are facing, especially in, uh, well, if people still remember something called COVID, uh, in the post-COVID normal. And uh, of course, I think throughout the pandemic and after as well, um, people talked a lot about the impact of the pandemic. And and uh, we've always been concerned also about the increase of social media use um, and uh, other pressures that children go through on children's mental well-being. But today we also want to shine a spotlight on whether parents' mental health challenges are being adequately recognised and supported. So joining us for this conversation today, um, Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan, Consultant Developmental Paediatrician, for her monthly show with us. Dr. Rajini, how are you? Hi, shall we? Fine, thank you. And uh, joining us is Licensed Counsellor, Hiran Kaur. Hiran, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. So um, call us at 0377332900 to um, share your concerns uh, with us if you're a parent or perhaps you just you deal with children, perhaps you're an educator. Um, what keeps you up at night? What are your concerns about children's behavioural and emotional issues perhaps? Uh, or if you're struggling with some mental health issues as a parent yourself or a caregiver to children, you can also WhatsApp us at our U mobile number 018789 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, Hiran, if I could start with you, because um, you know it was uh, you who prompted me to, to talk about this and you were saying that um, you've been seeing some trends related to parents seeking counselling services. Uh, so what have you observed? So what prompted me to uh, get in touch with you actually was um, me seeing um, an upwards trend. So... Uh, many more parents coming in, especially post-COVID. And uh, now in my practice, uh, in the counselling practice, I do uh, quite a bit of work in parent and parental counselling and parenting therapy. About 50% of my uh, the, the people I work with are children and teenagers and the other half are adults. And of that adult population, I'm seeing about 25%, so half the adult population, coming in with parental concerns. And, you know, incidentally, even the children, the teenagers, the issues they were coming in also concerned uh, difficulties with their parents. Um, So I'd say it's across um, age groups and uh, generations that we see difficult, I saw difficulties with parenting. What kind of concerns were you hearing? Um... With uh, with the children, yes, uh, from children, and well, related to parenting, right? Uh, universally, um, so perhaps first, what kind of uh, concerns were parents raising with you? Um, the, there were struggles with uh, you know economic struggles. There were struggles coming from the fact that they were parenting in nuclear families, very little support systems. Um, generational difficulties um, and uh, difficulty in understanding uh, how to raise children in a digital age. Um, So uh, around those themes. Mm -hmm. And uh, how it manifests for them. 
there must be a lot of anxiety, stress, uh, I'm assuming. Um, so I'm going to go beyond the uh, usual, you know, anxieties and stresses that come with parenting because uh, I'm, I think what you're alluding to are the more insidious effects. And I call them insidious because um, it's easy to uh, negate uh, parental difficulties because we put it down to so many other difficulties uh, that come alongside parenting. Whether it's economic struggles or, you know, it's, oh, I, I didn't sleep well, I'm stressed out, you know, I, um, I've not been resting properly. So we tend to negate until we cannot ignore it anymore. And, you know, I say insidious because it's like a, a horrible jump scare. And all of a sudden it becomes very overwhelming very quickly. And uh, so that's where that's coming mm. from. Dr. Rajini, mm. what are you seeing as well? You see children coming in with a, a whole range of issues um, and then their parents are there with them, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, you know, even pre-COVID, because I, the children that I see are often children who have underlying developmental issues and, uh, you know, may already have, uh, the parents may have known about their children ha having a possible um, uh, disability or, uh, you know, um, that their child is going to have challenges later on when they're born. So um, a lot of times when parents come in, many of them are there to find out what they can do best for their children but, um, you know, part of our uh, history-taking or fact-finding mission in trying to help families is also to make sure that parents are in the right place to help their children. So here you have a group of parents who already have the added um, uh, stress or, you know, we look at it as, okay, there's a, a risk factor here in the sense that they are already coming in at a place where they're lost. Uh, maybe um, finding it difficult to accept, going through the whole grief process because it, it's essentially like a grief process when you um, you don't get what you expect you're going to get. Um, and so then we're dealing with parents who are going through it at different stages of that process. Um, so this was even before COVID and, and a lot of the work that we do is actually about supporting parents because, you know, it, there's a lot of research that shows that um, children who are neurodivergent, you know, who have different abilities, regardless of their diagnosis, they do better in the longer term if parents are actively involved in addressing their children's needs and carrying out interventions or helping their children to develop skills um, in different settings, the home, when they're out with their kids, etc. Not just sending their kids for therapy. Mm. Then if you have a parent who themselves are struggling with their own um, often hidden needs, yeah, we, we, we often divide it as physical and mental, but I think it's more than just mental per se, you know, with their own hidden needs, as Heron mentioned, sleep, even getting enough time to eat, etc., and dealing with everything else, then um, they're not going to be able to help their children if they don't look after themselves. Mm, yeah. And then you throw COVID, the pandemic in, which really upset the balance even more. Um, parents were isolated. They could not reach out to the networks that they reached out to before. Um, being stuck at home, being isolated physically, mentally, etc. 
Um, and then you throw in the economic stresses. Um, so you can just imagine that post-pandemic... Mm. I think none of us need to really imagine it, right? Yeah. We, we lived it um, to a certain degree ourselves as well. Yeah. And we'd love to hear from you if there's anything you'd like to share uh, with us, with our guests today. Hiran, um, children and teenagers, uh, you also see them. You said they were also coming to you with issues related to their dynamic with their parents. What were you hearing from them? Essentially that the parents uh, just don't get them. So just finding it very difficult to have their parents understand um, how their needs are different to their parents' generation. Um, let's use an example. Uh, let's just take uh, devices. And uh, so you'll have parents who will make sweep sweeping statements, for example, and say, uh, you know, why, why do you need to be on there? What is it about smartphones? Uh, you know, in my time or when I was a kid and then, you know, and we go go on and on. Uh, but uh, for the children, the smartphone is a lifeline. Uh, it is a lifeline to their friends. It meets their social needs because the people that they are with, the communities that they um, socialize with, so much of that happens online. So for children, it's another means of socialization where else parents will look at it as purely a device. Mm. Uh, and uh, that's just one example of, you know, that generational divide. Mm. Yep. That, that's an age-old cry, isn't it? Um, <laughs> they don't understand me. And uh, the parents go back with, you know, in my time. Um, any, uh, Dr. Rajini, any thoughts on whether uh, the the and maybe every generation says this, but any thoughts on whether the challenges are a little bit sharper? Uh, this, this, you know, it's with what we're going through. Um, yeah, I guess with with each sort of generation, um, you know, uh, there's always a new challenge, right? Um, so my grandma used to say, "Oh, in our time, we didn't have, you know, your parents didn't have TVs to distract them. Now you have TVs." Um, then it moved on from TV starting at 5pm and then it started all day, all night and then the devices came in. I think, you know, I think it is hard for um, all of us to adapt. But I think parents especially, um, we need to adapt if we want to engage and be able to communicate with our children. And, you know, part of that is being in their world sometimes. And a lot of the time I'm always telling, talking to parents and saying, you know, um, part of building communication is getting down to their level, right? And if we're talking about toddlers, babies, you know, you 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 um, mirror what they, the sounds they make as the, at the start of communication. And then you start to help them with communicating in the way that they can. And so when you're dealing with children as they grow up, you always have to be part of what they're doing, what they're seeing and what they're hearing. Mm -hmm. Because only then we can un try to understand. Yeah, But we also have to remember our brains are mature. We can filter information. We have the traffic lights in place to stop when we need to stop and you know slow down, etc. Um, but children's brains don't mature they say until what you're 25 mm. or even 30 um so um and we know that right because insurance for for young drivers <laughs> rapidly right. go, drops after 25 
and and so that's telling us something, yeah. right? That that the brain isn't mature, and and we always have to try and understand that they'll never think the same way as us, especially when they're teenagers, mm. even though their size is the same, yeah, or more. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I think we lose sight of that because that's when we start to think of them as mini adults. And, you know, if you want to be treated like an adult, you should behave like one. But yeah. actually, biologically, um, we, there's still a, there's still a long way to go. Um, call us with your thoughts or any um, questions uh, that you have regarding this issue. 03-7733-2900. You can also WhatsApp us at our U-Mobile number 018-789-8899. We're discussing mental health among children and parents and uh, how that's very much interlinked with uh, what children will go through and what they will manifest. Uh, in the studio with me today, consultant developmental pediatrician, Dr. Rajini Savanandan, and licensed counsellor here in core. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. And my guests in the studio with me today, consultant developmental pediatrician, Dr. Rajini Saranandan, and licensed counsellor here in core. We are discussing the mental health issues that children experience um, in this current generation, going through pandemic and sort of transitioning into this, uh, this new normal that we're living in today, and what parents are struggling with as well in terms of their connection in the communication with children. You can call us at 03-777-32900 with any thoughts you might like to share, your concerns or your questions. You can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Dr. Rajini, sort of to continue um, that thread uh, that we left off with that uh, children's brains aren't actually fully developed until they're pro- probably in their mid-20s, even beyond, and therefore they cannot think. Um, uh, we can't expect them to think the same way that we do, uh, especially when it comes to very rational, uh, you know, logical uh, thinking, right? And yet children's behaviours and perhaps the, the unpredictability Um, what they seem to lack in terms of control is what parents also struggle with the most. Mm. Can you explain how children's behaviours are actually the expression of their emotional needs? Yeah, so um, a lot of the times um, when children exhibit certain behaviours that uh, we find troubling, um, we really have to look at it in terms of um, really how mature that brain is in the first instance. So rather than just looking at age, because I'm, I'm now talking about children uh, of differing needs, yeah? So we, we have to look at the level at which that child is um, able to look after himself, um, communicate his needs, etc. And quite often, um, if children are troubled, they don't have necessarily have the language to use. For example, if we... If we're tired, we say, oh, you know, it was just such a bad night last night. I couldn't sleep. Uh, My head hurts. You know, we describe it in so many different ways, right? For children, when they are tired, quite often they become grumpy. And then we push them, do this, do that. Then they start to get angry. And then we push them even more and they explode, right? So... And if you really, what we often focus on is that explosion or that tantrum or that meltdown, etc. But what we don't look at is really what happened before that. What was their physical state like? What was it that we were saying? What is it that triggered that child to eventually 
have that behaviour that we're seeing. So instead of always focusing on behaviour, we should say, why don't we look at really what happened before that behaviour happened and also how we respond to that behaviour. Because if we only respond to children when they produce a bad behaviour or a difficult behaviour, children then start to think that that's the only way I get my parents' attention. And you see that child then, you know, as a cry for help, always have negative behaviour to be able to get that parent's Mm. attention. Whereas what we want to see is that actually, okay, we, we can never expect a child to, you know, be always calm and that's just not normal. Mm, yeah, yeah. We, we all go through a range of emotions and that is normal. Um, so what we say is, you know, look at how we respond. If we're only responding negatively, then more than likely that child's always going to be exhibiting negative behaviour and that negative behaviour will change as that brain matures. So now it might be a tantrum. Later it may be taking something off my sister because then mum will get angry and come and hunt me down. Um, Later it might be I'll just play up in school because that's the only way mum will come in and she'll have to meet teachers, etc. I'm I'm not saying it's a conscious thing that they do, but sometimes that's how the brain works. Mm. Yeah, And this has all got to do with also the attachments that we build with our children from when they are really, really tiny mm. in those first few important years of life. Yeah. And speaking of attachments, Hiran, that um, the connections between parents and children then, um, what is the link between what children struggle with behaviorally or mentally or emotionally and um, what is ha- and the link between that and what's happening at home? with their parents, within the family. Perhaps it may not be a direct, um, directly connected to how parents are dealing with children, but things that are happening within the household, right? So what's that link? Um, what Dr. Rajini said just now really resonated uh, because she really pinpointed quite accurate, very accurately about the level of brain development. So one of the last parts of the brain to develop is actually the prefrontal cortex, um, which um, to to be able to visualize that that's kind of just right behind where our forehead is, and uh, as science shows now, the brain starts to develop from the base at the bottom, and then it slowly works its way up to the front. And by develop, what we mean is the neural connections, the superhighways of the brain, uh, the way that they are connected, slowly goes on and uh, into the twenties and then the early thirties. Uh, And we know this thanks to MRI scans, so it's fairly accurate science. And what we see in terms of behaviour, again, the generational divide is you'll have parents and children struggling to understand uh, each other. And uh, one of the most common things I see in my practice is uh, with because because I work with children from the mild to a moderate side of spectrums and then also with neurotypicals, so neurodivergent neurotypicals. And what I see so often with parents, especially of parents of children who are articulate and eloquent with their language, is that why are they acting out? And until I say to parents what they have not yet developed 
is emotional literacy and cognitive literacy. And by that, what I mean is we have specific words that we use to express feelings, specific words to express cognition, cognition meaning, uh, you know, thought processes. And we very often confuse that with event-centered language. So to just go back a little bit to what Dr. Rajini was highlighting earlier, if you have a child, uh, we'll pick your child up from school and on the way you'll have, you know, quite a lively conversation about, so uh, this friend did that to me and I learned about plants today. And uh, so they describe events quite nicely, but they will not of usually be able to say that someone upset them and in what way I was angry, I felt sad. That is in the area of emotional literacy, meaning specific words to describe your feelings. So I say to parents, um, this starts in the process of enriching your child's vocab. Um, please try and do away with uh, rubbish terms or generic expressions. So if you have a child, for example, says, or if you've prompted, you've investigated, you got information and your child says your child is upset, you might want to dig a little deeper and put more specific words to that. And were you angry? Were you sad? And that helps your child to enrich their vocab. And then that slowly builds up as they grow older. And then you find not only have you established a bond. So to answer your question, not only have you established a bond from the time your child was little, both of you have grown together with developing um, cognitive literacy and emotional literacy, putting the right words to express, you know, what mm. happens with us. Yeah. Because so often we actually tell kids to suppress um, feelings. Yeah. Don't cry. Mm. Um, you know, uh, don't be angry. Uh, it will be okay. Get over it, right? Oh, you're a boy. Oh, yes. Boys don't cry, mm. right? Yes, yes that's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> <Kieran's> like, yes. <laughs> and... Um, <clears throat> so I guess that's that's what parents can do to model uh, and uh, nurture that the emotional literacy, intelligence. Um, but I also want to sort of dig um, into some some things that perhaps uh, you know, like you said, parents going through financial issues, uh, and that may be something that won't that, that they may not come through in direct communication with their children. Um, but in what ways could that also be affecting the children's um, mental and emotional well-being? Um, so uh, the CDC, the CDC is the um, uh, Center for Disease Control in the United States. Uh, they've done some research on this and uh, one in 14 children, I think the American population is something like about 300 over a million. Um, one in 14, so those are huge numbers. Uh, of children mimic their parents' difficulties with mental health. Uh, I do not know of any Malaysian studies that have been done, but I really wouldn't be surprised that, you know, we will be showing similar numbers. Because in a very the very connected world that we live in today, uh, we've, Malaysians also experience repercussions of, you know, global, regional and uh, national uh, uncertainties. And then that translates into uh, daily living, so uh, what is different, though, to uh, how children and teenagers show uh, their behaviours, to uh, you know, contrasted from their parents, is it's in how it's presented. So what we call presenting issues or 
symptoms. And uh, in the last couple of years alone, I have seen um, things that I've never seen before in my practice. I have had teenagers come in uh, who's, who have developed anxiety to such a level that they pull their own hair out. Um, I have recently come across two cases of emetophobia, where anxiety has uh, grown to such an extent that children start, uh, they get so sick, they start to vomit. And then they become phobic about that, becoming f- sick in public or other people you know, be, uh, being sick. or So uh, things that I've never before seen in my practice. Mm-hmm. And so, um, of course, then we see an increase in risky behaviour, substance abuse, uh, body image issues, um, unrealistic expectations of uh, you know, re- what relationships and friendships ought to look like. Uh, so those are, you know, what come up in terms of presenting issues with teenagers. Dr. Rajini, you wanted to also talk about intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. So um, what are your concerns about you know, what young people are experiencing now, how that will continue on into adulthood and traverse generations? Yeah, I think, you know, um, we as a society have always sort of tried to hide um, our mental health issues, yeah? Uh, I think, shall we, you know, we've only started to have this conversation probably after 2016, if I look back. And I think it's been highlighted more because um, the burden it's taken on uh, on society. And, and, you know, it's scary. The National Health Morbidity Survey 2022, um, prior to the pandemic, we already had headlines saying that, you know, we're having a mental health crisis. And things have just got worse, right? Um, in the last couple of years, of course, exacerbated by COVID. Um, But really, if you look back, right, a lot of the children that we see today, if you look back to their families as well, um, you know, we talk about intergenerational trauma in that we say that if children today continue to have their um, difficulties suppressed and not dealt with, um, or dealt with very superficially, these children continue to carry their difficulties uh, into adulthood. They then have children. And, you know, pregnancy is also, especially, pregnancy is a very stressful time. And what we've seen with COVID is COVID is basically been a, a, a stress test, right, um, in a sense, to see how society has coped. And pregnancy is not far from that. Yes, Pre- pregnancy is a very stressful time, especially for f- young families, young couples, young mothers who are trying to uh, run a household, manage a job, uh, think about their financial future, plan for having a child, where they live, etc., having to travel through traffic, deal with all the other stresses that society puts on them. Um, And a lot of studies have shown that, you know, um, pregnant mothers who have anxiety and depressive symptoms, not disorders, so we're just even talking about symptoms, that if we don't address those, they then produce babies who are anxious and uh, emotionally labile. And that continues into their um, life 
and then they become mothers. And we know there's a biological basis to this in terms of epigenetics. Yeah, People always talk about epigenetics and intergenerational disease, for example, diabetes or high blood pressure. But we know the same is true for for the, you know, we want to talk about mental health or, you know, emotional health. Yeah. I, um, I think we'll go for a quick break, but um, just a thought to keep in mind, uh, something I want to pick up uh, when we come back is, um, you know, I'm always troubled by the, how, the, the very thin line between um, parents or, and society needing to ensure that uh, parents do their best to address uh, what the children are going through, but also where does that cross over into this bad parent label, mm-hmm. right? And um, the more and more expectations, especially being put on mothers as well. Um, and when we come back from the break, we'll also address a question from our listener, but you can keep them coming in. You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or call us at 03-7733-2900. We're talking about mental health among parents and children with consultant developmental pediatrician Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan and Hearing Core, a licensed counsellor. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my guests, Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan, consultant, developmental pediatrician, and hearing core licensed counsellor. We're discussing mental health among parents and children. Call us with your questions 03-7733-2900 or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. We'll get to our listeners' question very shortly. But as I was saying before the break, um, I'm concerned about perpetuating the bad parent label um, on parents who actually are genuinely struggling, trying to do their best and inundated with society's expectations and a lot of information that they're receiving about how to be the best, uh, how to raise the best, etc. Right? Um, hearing your thoughts on how parents can, this is a big question, balance these expectations. Um, what kind of support would you like to see parents getting? Um, it, it's it's a very tough environment to parent in now. And uh, I'm a mother to two children. Uh, both are adults today, 21 and 24. And uh, when I look at the teenagers who are coming in, so, um, you know, 14, 15 years of age, not very far from my children's age, but I would say just in the last 10 years, the issues have changed and they've exacerbated Uh, not just what the teenagers are going through, but also what the parents are going through. And some of these struggles, um, I do not remember having them. And that just tells you how much things have changed in in just even the last decade. And uh, one of the things I do see is um, a lot of pressure on mothers to appear like they have it all. I had just uh, last week, I met with a mother and uh, her group of girlfriends are planning a trip abroad um, and uh, she was very very conflicted about going and uh, and and then feeling very sh- bad about feeling conflicted um, and uh, so of course in the investigation the conversation uh, we explored things like you know where is that coming from and it emerged that there is this pressure to see like you have it all um, not only must you 
enjoy motherhood, you must also enjoy travel. And not only must you travel, you must also put up pictures on social media so that everybody knows the fabulous life you're living. <laughs> so much pressure to uh, make it appear like you have it all. But those of us who do maintain a presence on social media, we know that uh, much of what we see on social media is far from the truth. Um, and so when I speak with parents, I say to them, uh, keep it real. And what do I mean by that? It means that as with every major transition that ever happened in your life, parenting is one of the most major transitions you will ever experience. Parenting is one of the toughest jobs on earth. And the same way you transition from primary into secondary, for example, uh, Every time an addition has come into our lives, change happens. But that also means we have to adapt. Similarly with parenting, one of the biggest things you will ever experience has happened with you. You need to adapt. So keep it real. And by that, it is not possible to have it all because we have finite amounts of energy, resources, time. So prioritize. Uh, there are things that you may not be able to do for the time being, you may want to put them away or aside for a short while. Come back and do them later. For example, I had a dad who was saying many months ago that you know he couldn't go to the gym anymore, and I said, "Okay, you know, <laughs> all right." Um, but then he's a father to two toddlers, so that is major. And um, it was almost having to—it's having to normalize for parents that their experiences are. Um, their experiences are unique to parenting and uh, that means changes have happened. So you need to prioritize. Mm. Yeah. Any thoughts, Dr. Rajini? And I think perhaps uh, what you see are parents are struggling with that uh, added, you know, having to support a neurodivergent child and those additional stresses, stresses that come with it. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think there's ever a bad parent. Nobody goes out there has children to be a bad parent. We all have bad days, you know, all of us. I, I have had many bad days. You can interview my children about my bad parenting <laughs> days. But I don't think we are bad parents per se, or nobody intends to be. Um, and I think it's important that parents, as Hiran mentioned, I think there's so much on social media that looks so, you know, like a fancy iced cake mm. that you think you're failing because of that. And I feel sorry for parents who are going through that now. Um, in my time, you know, uh, yeah, we used to have sitcoms and, and movies that probably portrayed the, the perfect parent. But there were also some, fan, you know, fantastic movies um, that showed us that, you know, uh, parenting is a roller coaster. It's from that movie, right? That... Parenting is a roller coaster ride. Mm -hmm. You have your ups, you have your downs. Mm. Um, and the distinction between f what's make believe and real was was much clearer then. Yes, mm. I think nowadays when you see real life pictures being posted on social media, you think that's what should be the ideal, yeah. but, but it, it isn't. So I would say, um, you know, for parents who have neurodivergent children, it's even harder. But I say this to all parents, before you can really help your child, you need to help yourself first, okay? You need to deal with the 
challenges that you have. And this is where you have to build your own network. Yeah, and um, having that network is so important. And sometimes that network, in the past, we used to talk about the extended family, but for many, the extended family isn't always there. Yeah, and, you know, it was hard for me when I was trying to start my family away from my parents, especially my mum. But we found our network and people that helped supported us. Mm. And even coming back to Malaysia, where I did have an extended family, sometimes they're busy too. So you have to find your own little village. Um, and, you know, a big shout out to my village out there who've helped me all these years. Um, but I think it's very important that we don't look at it as bad parents, but maybe parents who need help. Mm. And that we stop judging parents, but saying, okay, we can't help your child until we help you. And these are things that maybe you need to address as a family. Mm. Um, And go back to to the basics of building that attachment and making sure that, you know, you build that, that, um, that little bond that you can then carry on and then form other bonds that are more stable. And uh, so the language for the for your uh, your network today is finding your tribe. Yes, I believe. <laughs> yes, that's the which is, that's the trendy that's term right. now. Which right? is a nice one. Yeah, yeah. find your tribe. Uh, and speaking of attachments, uh, this is a good time to turn to our listeners' question. Um, I hear you saying parents need to connect with mm. their children. I understand the need to do that, but in what way and how can we connect with them? I'm always lost on where and how to start. And I'd like to get both of you to weigh in. Yeah, I think it depends where you're starting. If you have um, little babies, that's a good place to start. And go to baby land, you know. Be your, you know, just get down there on the floor with your baby, have fun, have moments that you cuddle, um, even cherish the moments that they're crying and you can't work out why, okay. Um, but, just at every stage, you want to be at as much as possible at your child's level. Something my own ex-boss taught me. She had five children and she was a very successful consultant. And we all looked up to her and she said, one of the things you must always do is have alone time with each of your children. And she had five children. And she made it a point to have at least 10 to 15 minutes with each child. And that 10 to 15 minutes what she did with that 10-15 minutes depended on the age of the child. And she says, if you start when they're young, when they're teenagers and they don't really want you in the room, you can still say, hey, this is our 10 minutes. You may not want to talk to me, but I have so much to say to you. Or it can just be 10 minutes playing music and dancing and not talking. And, And really not imposing what you want to do in that 10 minutes. So that 10 minutes is not saying, I want you to study hard. You know, I hope you have a good life in the future. It's just about being with them and having fun. Yeah. Um, And you can do some really crazy things. And that 10 minutes doesn't have to be the same time every day. Make a TikTok video together. Yeah. 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 Mm. You know, and these are memories that when you're going through tough times, you can look back on and say, oh my gosh, we were crazy at that time, weren't we? Yeah. And those were fun days. And sometimes that's all it needs to break that 
that difficult moment that you have with your child. Mm. Nine and twelve, our listener. Um, Nine and twelve. Children. Uh, Nine and twelve. Here, in your, what do you think? Some tips, ideas? Um, I think what Dr. Rajini suggests is fabulous. Doing uh, alone time with your children. It's something that I suggest very often to parents and I say to them, uh, please go on one-on-one dates with your children. But you must be, you must keep it uh, fair. If you're going out with one child, you must go out with all your children. If you're doing what one child likes, you must do what all the children like uh, in your time with them. And um, please do not take that opportunity to turn it into a ra-ra-ra motivation session or a a nagging session. Uh, It is about... um, connecting with your child and uh, that is something that is asked very often uh, how do you connect so again Dr. Rajini brilliantly pointed out it starts from when our children are babies um, so of course we know you know babies don't focus very well in the first few months and then you know as the eyesight gets better they start mimicking what we do so start that eye contact uh, just being silly with your kids and then that slowly adds on as you look at uh, the um, may like certain cartoon characters get into their world watch their the cartoons that they like with them you can turn screen time into together time and then lots of teenagers are into manga and anime these days get to learn a little bit more about that um I hope I'm not taking too much of time, but one thing I would like to point out, and I hear this so often from parents, is that what they're trying to do is to toughen their kids up. And I say to parents so often, please do not confuse your roles. You are a parent. Please parent. You are not an employer. Please do not treat your children like employees. I resonate with where you're coming from. At the end of it all, as parents, what we want is for our children to be able to take care of themselves, look after themselves when we're gone. But the school of hard knocks and the environment out there will toughen them up. What you need to be is their person. What you need to be is their tribe. You need to be the one that they go home to. Home needs to be sanctuary. And... Um, what do we do when we no longer can tolerate our employers? The the newer term, the new age term now is the quiet quitting. We do the barest minimum to not get fired. But even when that is no longer tolerable, we quit our employers. We do not want our children to quit us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So please do not treat them like your employees. They are your children. Please parent. Um so I'm going to indulge uh, our listeners' follow-up questions because it, it resonates with me as well. As kids get into the tween and teenage uh, ages, uh, it's going to be so much more difficult to build those connections. Our listener said the 12-year-old rejected the one-on-one time together, doesn't want to participate. So, you know, quiet quitting? No? Just keep pushing? Um, well, I would say, what does your child like to do? Uh, perhaps that has not been investigated. So why was that one-on-one time rejected? Perhaps because prior to uh, that one time, every other opportunity that ever came up did turn up to be something that became stressful for the child. So you need to have an honest conversation. What was it about those all those other times that stressed your child out? And then investigate. What does your child want to do? 
please, please engage the children because they come up with brilliant suggestions. Mm. They'll come up with things that we don't even think about. Yeah, and not to scoff at those, um, those ideas, right? Um, I think the thing I'm taking away from the conversation is um, as parents, we really need to shed a lot of um, notions, preconceived notions, and yeah. um, be quite honest and harshly honest with ourselves, I think. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Dr. Rajini Savanandan, consultant developmental pediatrician and here in core licensed counsellor. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.